Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Michael Moto. Dr. Moto is a professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also a member of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Moto, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you for the invitation. You recently published a paper dealing with one of your keen interest areas, which is repair of damage caused by stroke. Can you tell us a little bit about your study? We've been working in terms of trying to repair damage caused by a stroke. Uh, initially, that took us down the road of using neural stem cells that normally form the brain during development and implanting those into damaged tissue. But what we noted was that the tissue that has been completely lost through cavitation is never really replaced by the cells that has been granted. And that led us to start to think, what is it that we need in terms of trying to restore that tissue that has been completely lost. And that really has led us to the use of bioscaffolds in terms of providing a, a structural support that cells can migrate through and onto and eventually replace to create a new tissue inside the brain. Let's go back and look at the question of, of uh, what happens when somebody has a stroke. Is the tissue lost in the brain or is it made non-functional? A few things can happen. So if you have an ischemic stroke where you have a blood vessel that is blocked, then the area downstream from that blockage is not supplied with blood. So eventually nutrients and oxygen is missing, and that will lead to cells dying. And as these cells are dying, eventually other cells come in called macrophages. And they basically will also take away that cement that holds the cells together as a tissue called the extracellular matrix. So that can be lost as well. In those circumstances, you really get a cavity. But if you have a mild stroke, the cavitation might not actually occur. You might just get a loss of cells. And then the tissue structure itself might be maintained. Even in cases where we have cavitation, around that cavitation, you have what is called the peri-infarct area. And in that area, you will have cells that have been lost, and you will have the brain starting to respond to that damage by supplying new cells, new neurons. They migrate into that area, and they can replace some of the cells. And in some ways, the implantation of cells into that area kind of supplements that process. So that's what would happen after a stroke. Your paper addressing the case where there's tissue lost or just tissue damage. Yes, that's right. And so this would mainly be in terms of where you have a tissue loss. That's the question where you could use now bioscaffolds in terms of providing a substrate where new tissue can form. If you don't have this cavitation, then you would still recommend in terms of the implantation of cells to essentially supplement the host response to the damaged tissue, which is insufficient to promote behavior recovery. How does the immune system get involved in this? So the immune system is involved in several ways. One is if you have a stroke, the immune system gets activated because all of a sudden you have damage and the immune system comes in in terms of helping to clear out the dead cells it helps to form new blood vessels and things like that. But that response typically subsides as you go on. The cavitation in terms of clearing of that 
debris of extracellular matrix and cells is also affected by macrophages that invade the central nervous system and dispose of it. So that's in some ways where we think in terms of the pro-inflammation that occurs where the immune system comes in and it kind of clears off the things that should no longer be there. There's a second aspect of the immune system that comes into place once we inject these bioscaffolds is that immune cells are invading and they are starting to become a pro-repair phenotype and they start to promote the invasion of new cells. They degrade the scaffold and create new space for cells to invade and, and restore the tissue. And some of those immune cells, uh, microglia, for instance, they are resident in the brain. They also help new blood vessels to form their structure after damage as well as in the case in terms of tissue regeneration. So when you talk about bioscaffolds, I know there's various types of bioscaffolds. So I generally put it into two categories. Mm-hmm. One is biologically derived scaffolds, and there's a synthetic scaffold. Right. What type are you looking at here? You're absolutely right. So there's two types, natural biologically derived bioscaffolds, and even they come in different forms that you have things like silk, but you also have them from mammalian tissues. And that's the type of material that we use. Essentially from tissues, the cells are removed, and then the extracellular matrix is retained, and it's reformulated as a hydrogel, similar to a hair gel, if you want, in terms of consistency. And we're using that because it can adapt to any kind of shape and it can be formulated under different concentrations so we can control the stiffness of it. But the content is essentially what is naturally there in the material. So in some ways that is preferable. This is what we would call a top-down approach versus a bottoms-up approach that is normally used with synthetic materials in which case you define every property of the material that you have. You define its composition, you define its mechanical properties, physical attributes, but in some ways at the moment that's kind of guessing what should really be there versus the naturally derived material. We're saying this is what nature kind of put in place to be there and that way we think that is more or less the right formulation in terms of what is needed to replace the tissue that has been lost. The brain consists of tissue and vascular structure, veins and arteries. Is this a regenerative process that you're talking about, likely to regenerate both tissue as well as the blood vessels? Yes. Tissue essentially is different types of cells, blood vessels, and extracellular matrix that holds it all together and defines its structural properties. What we describe is really these bioscaffolds going in And they really have to replace both things. If we don't get a blood vessel to form inside this bioscaffold or this new tissue that is forming, it essentially will not develop. The blood vessels are a central component in terms of devising this neurovascular unit that divides the brain into the neuropil. That's essentially what we're thinking is the elements that uh, drive brain activity and then the vasculature which supplies the brain with the blood and the nutrients it needs to work. So if you don't have blood vessels, you cannot have a neuropil that is functioning, essentially the cause of what causes a stroke. So you really need the blood vessels in terms of being there and providing a new blood supply, a neovasculature. What we also see is in the neuropil, 
so far we're achieving about 8% of the cells being neurons in that newly forming tissue. And that contrasts with about 42% cell fraction in normal tissue. So we're still quite a bit off in terms of what we need in terms of creating a normal-like tissue using this approach. But bearing in mind that previously there was no evidence of any new tissue forming in the brain, this is still a major advance in terms of showing that this is potentially a possibility of what one could do in terms of regenerative medicine. So I noticed in your paper that you have a section dealing with wound healing versus tissue mm-hmm. regeneration. Can you give us some insight into that topic? Yeah. Quite often wound healing is considered as one of those examples where you have tissue that is being regenerated and the question is what are the processes involved in that and could we recapitulate that in other examples in terms of being able to regenerate tissue. So if you have a skin wound cut or an abrasion on the skin, how long does it take? What are the different elements, the different phases that that goes through? The argument that I present in this particular review is that if you have a volumetric tissue loss, that might provide a slightly different scenario versus just a cut. When you have a cut, basically the tissues, they are just juxtaposed, and in between those connections are gone, and all you need to do is basically restore that. And that contrasts with a volumetric tissue loss, where really a big piece of tissue is gone, like a muscle or piece of bone that is, is completely gone. And that's essentially what we're looking at in the brain, is that you have a part of the brain, it's void in terms of the tissue, And some of the processes involved in this peripheral wound healing in terms of this rapid invasion of immune cells that kind of kick off a regenerative process, that seems to be very similar. But a key difference really seems to be that in just a cut on the wound, you don't really need to replace a big piece of tissue. And in the brain or in the muscle, that is different. So in that case, you really need a scaffold that basically bridges the gaps and provides the structural element where cells can invade and basically restore. Whereas with a cut, you don't really need that. You just need to basically reconnect the different tissues. So that's really the difference between those two elements, the way I see it. What kind of cells do you propose to use? Well, so in our case, we're just not using any exogenous cells, so we're not implanting any cells with the material. It's really just the material itself being implanted, and then we really use the patient's own cells. They start to invade the material. So that's a major advantage that you really don't need anyone else's cells, so it's easier in terms of a source. But it's also an advantage in terms of that if you're using someone else's cells, there's always a risk that the immune system recognize them as foreign and starts to attack them. And so in the circumstances that we describe here, in terms of just using a, an A-cell or a bioscaffold, we would really circumvent those scenarios where the host could mount an immune response to whatever we implanted. So how do you get this material, this scaffold material, into the cavity? What we normally do is we do a magnetic resonance imaging of the patient That tells us where the damage is and how big the damage is. And that allows us now to do surgical planning for stereotactic injection. What does a stereotactic injection mean? Is that if you think about the head as being kind of a ball, it has three dimensions to it. And in some ways, 
we define based on where the skull, the two plates come together, we define that as an origin, and then we calculate in terms of where that injection needs to go and how much of it. Once we've got that coordinate, the other element that we have to worry about really in terms of getting these bioscaffolds in the brain is that the brain is enclosed in the skulls, so it's a closed system, it cannot give. And if we're now injecting a large volume, then we increase the pressure. So to avoid that, we put a second kind of uh, drill hole and a cannula in there that now allows basically the fluid that fills up that cavity, it allows it to escape as we're injecting the bioscaffold in. And by doing that, we can really fill up the entirety of that tissue cavity without increasing the pressure in the brain. The further advantage of that approach is really that we also get some of that extracellular fluid that is in that cavity, and we can now analyze what kind of biomarkers are present within that liquid that we evacuated from the brain. Let's assume that the uh, loading of the cavity is successful. Mm -hmm. How do you reload the data into the new tissue? One aspect that is, has been really interesting in the last few years is that it emerged that part of the brain that is called the ventricle, that's filled with a fluid. And the wall around that ventricle, that's where new neurons are born in a process called neurogenesis. Essentially, the regional pattern of that ventricle recapitulates the divisions of different regions in the brain that are formed during development. So the lateral wall, for instance, produces cells that during development contribute to the stratum. And the bottom part of the ventricle is another element of a different type of cell that invades the stratum. And the top part of the ventricle produces cells that are typically associated with the cortex, so another region in the brain. So in some ways, that is our hope that by putting that scaffold in, these cells from these different regions of the ventricle, they will start to migrate towards the areas that have been damaged and replace the scaffold with cells that are, are meant to be there. But at the moment, the evidence for that we're still lacking. But that at least is the hope that we have, that it might be able to replace exactly the right tissue of what we need. After injection, mm -hmm. what's the normal time for getting a positive situation? Right. The time course in terms of how these things happen are still a little bit unclear. What we know so far is that within two weeks, about 90% of the bioscaffold that we injected is removed or degraded and replaced by new material that is formed out of the existing brain. By three months, it's a little bit more, but we still have very few cells. So the question is, do we need to go much longer than three months before you have a more intact tissue that is forming? Just to give you an example in terms of a contrast with other species is that in some of the salamander or fish species that can regenerate brain tissue, not just cells in the brain, but brain tissue, there is some evidence that it might take up to a year for a tissue to be fully formed again. That might be the time frame that we're looking at here. So far, we have not taken these experiments beyond three months, but those are some of the questions we're now eagerly hoping to address and see if we observe for longer if we get a more and more complete tissue restoration. What's the uh, expected time frame before you might do a clinical study? 
in some ways it might go quite fast. There are patients with a condition called malignant middle cerebral artery occlusion. In those cases, there is so much damage in the brain from that stroke that actually a surgeon needs to urgently open the skull and remove part of the brain tissue that has been swelling because if they don't do that, the swelling actually is going to kill the patient. So in those patients, there's a large part of the brain that is surgically removed and there's a large opening that might open an opportunity in terms of putting one of these scaffolds in to just support the brain from kind of like expanding into that void of tissue. So that might be a rather fast way into the clinic. If we're now talking about the typical stroke patient, I think we want to understand a little bit more in terms of what these materials really do. We want to show conclusively that there is an absolute benefit of having this new tissue forming and that there's no complications for it. And I think that probably would be on the timescale of three to five years. And I think to be even more safe, we also want to go into a larger species where the brains are bigger than in a rat that allow us a little bit more in terms of understanding how dimensions in terms of the size how they influence the time course in terms of regenerating that tissue, but also maybe dealing with larger volumes, it might be that the principles that we discovered might no longer scale properly, and then they might need further investigation to make sure that they work in patients. So that might take longer in terms of the time frame of 10 to 15 years in terms of really being able to make sure that this would benefit a patient with a typical stroke. So I have to comment that we made significant progress up to this point. While the time frames you talked about for moving seem long, particularly mm-hmm. people who have some type of stroke damage, these are significant hurdles that you have to pass. Yes, so it's a similar timeline in terms of if you're looking at the stem cells, when we started to work on those, everyone was hoping that we would very fast be in the clinic, but it took really almost 20 years in terms of from the initial experiments to the first patients being treated. So for these more complicated therapies in the brain, that might be a more reasonable time frame in terms of making sure that all the elements are working together. So making sure that the bioscaffolds are safe, that we understand what they're doing, that the surgical approach is working. So I think in some ways it's a question of trying aggressively getting this to patient, but not at the cost of it being safe. Dr. Moto, thank you for joining us today and sharing with us your results of your pioneering research. We wish you and your colleagues well as you move to the next step in terms of solving this important problem. Thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again, thank you for listening. <laughs>